This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. So the journalism industry today is highly, highly competitive and a lot of kind of old school uh, journalists. I don't even know if there are any anymore, but you, you hear complaints about it. The barriers to entry are very low. Anyone can jump on and do it, obviously, because of what the Internet has done. And this has created a tremendous amount of competition to get clicks. Today, I'm talking with Robbie Sove. Uh, he is a staff editor at Reason.com. He also writes for the Detroit News, an old school newspaper. And uh, he's written for The Daily Caller previously. He was uh, a journalist in college at the University of Michigan. And Robbie uh, covers everything from education policy to criminal justice to uh, television and, and pop culture. And we're going to talk a little bit about journalism and what it's like today to be a journalist. How do you keep up? How do you stay relevant and get clicks while still doing good work? So, Robbie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So first, um, tell us a little bit about how you became a writer. How did you know that that's what you wanted to do? How did you learn the skills you needed? What was kind of your evolution into this career? Sure. Well, I always knew I wanted to be a writer uh, ever since I was a kid. I didn't know uh, I would end up as a journalist. Uh, I always saw myself like writing fantasy books or something, uh, which maybe one day I'll get there. But um, in, in college, I just kind of on a lark, uh, I read something in, in the Michigan Daily, uh, the, the student newspaper at the University of Michigan, that uh, really I really disagreed with. So I wrote like a column uh, that I submitted to them, and, uh, and they liked it so much they actually hired me. So like without seeking it out, really, I just kind of got roped into, uh, into doing journalism uh, in college. And that was my second year of college. And then that kind of came to dominate my entire uh, education at the University of Michigan. I was eventually student editorial page editor. I was writing lots of columns. Uh, and I really, uh, from, that, from that, decided that, that um, that's the direction I wanted my career to take. So, so after that, I did uh, internships to land where I am now. So, so you have like the opposite of the, <laughs> the traditional like romantic story of, you know, Stephen King getting all of his manuscripts rejected. Like yeah. the first thing you ever wrote, they were like, hey, how about a job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In college, that is, uh, that is how it worked. Although uh, after that, when I got into the real world of journalism, then it was a lot, uh, a lot more uh, difficult to make each of those uh, steps when you're starting out. Well, um, so so quickly you touch it back on the the college thing. That first column that you wrote, it was like, oh, I, I'm annoyed and irritated by by this, so I'm going to write a response. Did you have like had you done a lot of writing just for yourself or in high school? Did were you already like a practiced writer or was this kind of like, yeah, what the heck I'll take a stab at? Like how, how did you get to the point where, you know, you sort of had the ability to write something good enough to make them want to bring you on at the, at the student newspaper? I would say I have a natural talent for writing, especially relative to other things. I was, you know, I was an English history kind of student, uh, in high school. I really enjoyed my, did you do a lot of reading? I did a ton of reading. You know, I, I, those were my favorite classes. So, uh, yeah, I, I, 
yeah, I was reading, you know, like Lord of the Rings and Dune from a very early age. Okay, so so mostly like fiction stuff is what you yes. usually read. Yeah, okay. Right, but I wasn't uh, super practiced, uh, no, in like the kind of formal opinion argument uh, sort of thing that you do for, for opinion pieces. And I had absolutely zero training writing like a news story. Um, so so it is a kind of different kind of writing, but, uh, but I did have like... Uh, you know, basic writing skills and an interest in writing and had practiced it a lot. And that's uh, very important for being good at it, obviously. So um, this this is a great, I wanted to ask you about this and I had forgotten. I'm glad you reminded me. Re, just like maybe last week, I posted a quote from uh, Ray Bradbury about like, it was something to the effect of, you can't really learn to be a good writer in college uh, writing courses. It's it's really a bad place to learn that. You just have to basically read a lot and write a lot. And I had all these people commenting on it and a lot of them like, oh, that's not true. Maybe for super gifted people, but you have to be instructed on how to write, etc. What are your thoughts on kind of the role of formal instruction? Let's take journalism specifically. I, I've talked to a lot of sort of old hands in the uh, journalism or news industry who, who off, who will say things like, uh, journalism school is a waste. If you want to be a good journalist, don't, don't go get a degree in journalism. I mean, what are your thoughts on kind of the formal instruction of learning to be a, a journalist versus just picking it up through, I don't know, reading and writing and, and practice? Yeah. The, a formal education in journalism, like at a university is beyond pointless. Um, it's, you can't, um, which is not to say that there's no instruction needed in journalism, but it's, it's a craft, uh, not a philosophical discipline. It's something, uh, that you, you should learn on the job doing. I mean, there's nothing. So it's not like if you, if you memorize these 10 rules of journalism and are tested on them and you can remember them, you'll be a good journalist. It it has to be a, a sort of tactile yeah. give and take uh, like while you're doing it yeah absolutely i mean and you would learn so much more in just a decent journalism internship uh than you would and i don't know no one would hire you you know if you go to the most elite if you go to the columbia journalism school and you do something there yes you can get a job uh but that takes so much time and effort and money that i don't know why you would you would rather not spend that like seeking out uh, just like an actual practice crash course internship in journalism where you'll learn virtually the same thing uh, at like much less cost to you. I've always thought it was funny that all the people I know who are good writers, news writers, journalists, um, most of them, you know, they, they learned it high school, college range somewhere from doing a lot of writing, just like you at the student newspaper, et cetera. And I always think it's interesting when you think about it, um, four years and however much money spent learning, maybe it's English, maybe it's journalism, maybe it's something unrelated. But really the value was writing for that student newspaper. So like, instead of going and getting a degree, you know, if you want people, I guess a, a school for writers, just like set up a, a student newspaper and, <laughs> and writing for the student newspaper, editing for it, that whole part of the experience that's where I think most of the value comes for people who want to become writers. Now, that's that's just me looking from the outside. But I know you were very involved in the student newspaper. Um, what was the value of that relative to all of the other sort of formal, you know, things that you were doing in in um, your college, you know, experience? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say this is probably like the main path into journalism. Like what I did is is similar to probably the bulk of journalists my age working for the student newspaper, which was just a great, you know, a great education. So I learned from people who had started at it a, a couple of years before I did. So they had a lot to teach me, you know, a couple a couple times of having what I'd written you know, torn apart by an editor who went over every word and every sentence and from the argument to the actual style of, 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 of writing it, you know, that just improves your writing so quickly. And, and you have to turn around a lot at the student newspaper. You know, they, it has a small staff of students putting out a pretty impressive, frankly, newspaper. So you have, you know, some people are writing something every day. So it's a very quick process of improving your writing. And actually, I mean, the funny thing is, so I was doing a lot of writing for my regular classes, too. I was an English major, and I found my creative writing classes wonderful for improving my writing. I love my creative writing professors. And, and I think it's because they help you, you know, uh, instill some, some character into your writing, uh, some individual style. But the kind of academic formal writing I was doing for just your generic literature class or something, that writing is so pointless and actively bad because you just like learn to construct very repetitive sort of things. You, you're, you know, you're trying to get to eight pages. So you're saying like the same sentences over and over again. <laughs> like, what is the point? It, it, it's actually <laughs> making your writing worse because all good writing is as brief as possible, especially nowadays when it's online. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to uh, Steve Patterson on an earlier episode a couple weeks ago about um, citations and how, you know, I used to, you know, you'd get these requirements like you have to cite five sources or 10 sources in this paper. And I would just write the paper and then like later just <laughs> just go look up a bunch of sources and claim that I was, you know, that's where the ideas came from. Well, it contributes to groupthink in a way because everyone's Googling the same the same prompt everyone's coming across the same dozen sources and everyone's uh so everyone's turning in you know similar similar papers yeah you you look up the professor see what they've written and then cite those things you can't go wrong there (laughs) the research paper should not survive in the in the move to like the internet uh i mean to actually like gauge people's writing in an academic setting i think you you have to have them do like in-class essays where they actually, you know, like an enlightened philosopher. Yeah, yeah. Actually saying what they think and drawing on knowledge that they have inside them or else or else how can you demonstrate they've learned anything? You know, it's so interesting. Like, I just imagine, I mean, why, why can't you have the college newspaper without the college? <laughs> you know, like, just take... take for a the, fraction of the cost. Right, exactly. For, you know, if you want to learn to write. Well, so this is a, this is a good segue too. So you kind of started writing in a newspaper setting uh, that had a high frequency of stuff that you're pumping out. So it's not like I'm going to sit down and write, you know, this great epic work that's going to be, that's going to last and make an impact for generations. No, you're writing articles that people are going to forget about two days after they read them, but they're going to talk about them for a day or two. I know U of M is a very kind of politically uh, charged or politically engaged campus. There's, you know, everything's turned into a controversy by certain student groups and whatever, and it's got kind of a, an energy to it. So you started writing in what many people consider to be like the, the scariest venue. That's a venue where 
everything you say, there's probably someone who's going to disagree with it openly. Uh, there's immediate market feedback. Um, people will rip on you or, you know, write letters about how much your stuff was inaccurate or it sucked. You, you're immediately exposed to, and again, in, in a more limited sense at the university level, but it's still, it's still there. It's still that market feedback. It's not like, writing your short story that no one's ever seen and you're working on it for two months, you know, behind closed doors. It's like cranking stuff out and having that pressure. Um, what, what was that like? Do you ever feel like you can't really be yourself because you have to write things that will get people's attention and that will appeal to the mass market? That is, uh, there is that trade off a little bit. I, because you can, you know, you can write, just whatever you want, as long as you want you, you could write a 10,000 word uh, diatribe about your views and publish it on your blog and no one will ever read it. And if, I mean, if that's fulfilling to you, I've done it before. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, people keep, it's like a version of keeping a diary. People have kept diaries for, you know, for hundreds of years. So, so there's nothing wrong with that. I am not like that. I want people to read what I'm writing. Uh, I'm conditioned to write for for readers, for an audience. So I uh, pick topics, and I I never let that dictate like what I'm actually saying, but it dictates the topics I choose. I I choose newsy topics, uh, things that I think will get people talking. I don't write the actual content in a in a way that's uh, that's deceptive or provocative. But I think it's fine and, in fact, necessary to market it in the most flashy way possible by by choosing headlines and pictures and things like that that are going to cause people to, to stumble over what you're writing. Robbie I mean, Soleil did a podcast interview. You won't believe what happened next. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that construction – uh, and you know, you can't annoy people like people hate that construction now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, these things have kind of short shelf lives, like, exactly. you know, whatever upworthy, they had this new way of, you know, phrasing things and everybody clicked and then it's like two weeks in, we're all tired of it. You got, you gotta be, you gotta be innovative in a way. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, do... I like to tell them as much as I possibly can in the headline. I like to, you know, I like to, cr- huh. they've got to be short, but I like to cram as much information, be like, look, this happened to this person. It's outrageous. Read. Huh. Um, I, w- I want to get back to, uh, in a few minutes, that sort of tension and how you get a lot of clicks and a lot of traction and what that's like as a writer. But um, just on a more personal level, you know, you said you you write for an audience. That's what you like to do. What what motivates you? You know, when you get up, because because you're productive, you crank out. I just pulled up your archives on Reason, and you know, some days you're writing three articles. You you write one pretty much every day. Some days two or three. Um, what motivates you when you get up? What's your what's your daily schedule? Do you have habits and rules for yourself to keep cranking it out? And and what sort of keeps the fire burning for you? Yeah, well, there are like soft rules, like, you know, kind of terms of my employment things. Like I, I should be writing between one and three things a day. I have a couple editing tasks, but I, uh, I look at it that I want to, you know, I want to reach more people every day. I pay very close attention to my web traffic numbers, to the number of people clicking on my articles a day, uh, and to the number of, uh, people sharing my articles on Facebook and Twitter and to the number of uh, other journalists, prominent journalists, people with uh, bigger, larger platforms than I have uh, when they respond to my articles. Uh, That thrills me. 
you know, when they have taken time, when they've seen something of value or something to criticize in what I've written, and it actually appears at, you know, at National Review or at Salon or at uh, Talking Points Memo or you know, other places uh, uh, picking up on what I'm writing. Uh, I love that. So, so those are the big successes I look for. I want to have. So, uh, so it's almost that that thrill. You know, somebody told me once, and I, and I found it like, okay, the first time you see your name in print, no yeah. matter how much you think you don't care, you'll be excited. You'll get a high from it, um, and it's true. And that's something that most people, maybe you write a letter to the editor once or you have a blog post that gets picked up or even like a Facebook status that gets 100 likes and people are like, OK, that's really exciting. That's really fun. I, you know, I, I often wonder, does that does that still work? And it sounds like from what you're telling me, like you still get that high, that charge that like, yes, let's go see what. Oh, my gosh, this one blew up like that. That really kind of motivates you regularly, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Daily. Same thing every day. Yeah, I am thrilled to see. Uh, to see those, to see the Facebook shares coming in and to see people. And, you know, I enjoy seeing my name in print when I occasionally write something for a newspaper. But uh, but the web traffic and the sharing and, and like those things are, are built into the business side of what I do, too. I mean, they're they're what I'm I'm was hired to do you know, to build an audience for our content. So it's not so. So that's like a perfect overlapping of what I want out of my career in life and, you know, what I've been brought on at Reason Magazine to do. Yeah, uh, I, I love to hear you say that, that I love to see my name in print. I love to get the stuff out there like I want as many readers as possible because, you know, there, there's this obsession with, I think, like false humility with, with everyone having to pretend to be humble. I mean, you see it in everything from like post game interviews with athletes it's like they all have to do the obligatory like, oh, no, 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 like it wasn't me. And, and, you know, that no one should ever admit that like, hey, I just want a huge audience. I want lots of attention. I want to see my name in lights. You're supposed to be like, well, I really just do it because of the content, whatever else. And, and I'm not saying that you don't care about the content. I know you do. But to hear that honesty is refreshing. And I think it's refreshing not only because it's probably true of most of us and most people just don't say it, but also because it's dangerous. There's a vulnerability there. Once you've publicly said, I want to get a ton of traction. I want to be widely read. I want my stuff to get out there. Now, if it's not, people are like, oh, Robbie failed, right? Whereas if you just say, if you pretend, oh, I'm not doing this for the hits. I'm just doing this for myself. Then like you can't fail, right? You can't set you. And I think there's, there's something that I, I really respect and admire about you saying like, look, I want to blow it up. I want to get traction. That's what motivates me. Um, so, so good for you. All right. Let me, let me ask you before we move back to the clickbait, um, <laughs> topic, uh, cause I'm really interested in that. So like a typical day, I mean, you've got to write one to three things and do some editing, um, you work uh, remotely and you have a, a pretty good degree of flexibility, it sounds like, um, in you know sort of the, the when and the how you write and even the what that you write about. What does your typical day look like? Do you have a, a regular routine to keep you productive? Are you like Hemingway where you spend the first four hours of the day writing and then you go get drunk or what? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's. Um... Definitely a, a not one of the, the things about journalism that are, are not as uh, uh, conducive to a commercial for journalism, I guess. Like, oh, this is so great. You want to do it, too, is the difficult uh, uh, work day. I have no definite schedule. I, I get up mostly at the same time in the morning. 
but just some days I am still writing at three in the morning. Uh, I mean, that happens usually at least one, once it, a week. Is that because you're responding to news items? Yeah. I mean, yes. I, okay. I mean, it's partly preference. Like some people can't write that late and I am, am still kind of like lucid and, and do some of my best writing late at night. But sometimes it's unavoidable when something just happens at 11 p.m. And, you know, and because I want to be I have the, you know, a drive to have a lot of traffic and a lot of success that way. Well, I want it. One of the surest ways to uh, to kind of blow it up is to get to it first. So I will respond to things at you know, kind of insane times. So that uh, means I'm kind of on the clock like. 24 hours a day. So how do you, how do you manage like downtime? Like how do you make sure that you get some R and R or whether it's just a couple hours here and there during a regular day or take a vacation? Because I imagine that you can condense the hours that it takes to write two or three articles into a relatively small time frame. but because you have to be so responsive to things, I mean, does that make you like sort of unable to, I don't know, go out on a date with your wife or whatever? Well, in some ways, I'm more flexible because, you know, I'm like, we went to Florida last week. That was fine. I didn't really take any time off work. I took like a day the day we were traveling. But, uh, you know, the rest of the time when there was something I needed to do, I could just, you know, I could sit out by the beach and I have my laptop and that's all I need. You know, if we want to, you know, babysit our nephews or take them to the zoo or something, you know, we can probably do that. I can probably step away for a couple hours pretty much any day. Uh, but by the same token, you know, like last Easter, there was, uh, there was breaking news with a case I followed at the university of Virginia, this sort of debacle over Rolling Stones reporting about a crime at the university of Virginia. And the report was coming out on Easter. So, you know, I was <laughs> there with my family on my laptop open typing, you know, three different opinion articles, uh, that I was wanting to submit to different sites, including the coverage I was doing for reason. So you have that too. And that's happened to me on more than one holiday. So one of the, one of the struggles that I have, and it's a, you know, different industry, but there's a, there's a similarity to it. Um, in, in the sense that you have to be mentally engaged basically 24 hours a day, like, like you can't completely unplug. So, you know, running a, a startup company where there's a lot going on, it's okay. Yes. It's there's flexibility, you can go to the beach during the middle of the day with your kids and, um, you know, that's great. You've got your phone, you can check your emails. So you're there physically, you know, as you mentioned, taking your nephews to the zoo, but I don't know if your wife has ever accused you of this, but mine certainly has, but you're not, <laughs> you're not fully there mentally because you've always got to be sort of plugged in, like, you know, checking your email. Oh, let me just quickly respond to this. I, you know, so is that ever a struggle for you to, or for your wife? Um, do you ever feel like you're, you're, you're unable to sort of be fully present in those moments, even though you're physically there because you have the flexibility? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you can always, you're always getting emails, you know, you, uh, I, journalists do a lot of arguing on Twitter, like a lot of it. Uh, and some of it is quite productive for the work that you're doing. Uh, other times it's hard to tell, but it's part of building a profile of you and, and engaging uh, journalists who are going to read your work, you know, more important journalists. Huh. But, you know, I always have Twitter open. Sometimes people are, you know, responding to me at crazy hours. So sometimes I'm answering on the phone. So yeah, it, it does. Uh, it's exactly what you said. Always. I'm always plugged in. I'm never in off mode. I think uh, for better or worse, this is kind of like just increasingly a thing for 
everyone now that uh, now that it's so easy to talk to people everywhere at all times because of the modern world that we live in. But it's definitely hit things like what you do and uh, and things like journalism uh, hit them first. Yeah, it's one of those things that I, I am I am always so irritated by any big sweeping claims that are like things are so much worse than they used to be and you know people never spend time together blah blah I, I always think that stuff is like it's like set in a vacuum it's not compared to anything in the real world I, I I don't I don't buy it I think that there are challenges with every new technology um, but there's equal if not more opportunities so the way I see it is like yes absolutely you now have the ability if you want to or simply if you don't sort of seize control of your own habits in your own life to feel like you are kind of being controlled by this constant connectivity. It just means that, um, you know, b before you didn't suffer, struggle with that just because it wasn't an option, even if you wanted to struggle with it. Now you have the option to be constantly connected if you want to. And it puts the onus on you with more opportunity comes more responsibility to kind of decide if and, and to what extent you want to do that. So it, it is a challenge, but I also see it as like, I don't know. I always get I always get irritated when people are like, oh, the world today, everyone is, you know, no one has real conversations anymore. And it's like, well, you can if you want to, <laughs> you know, having real conversations while we do our backbreaking farm labor. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, and I see it, though, is, uh, you know, I don't plan to be, you know, plugged in writing things at 3 a.m. my whole life. This is an investment period where I'm I'm working as hard as I can, building my profile and as maximizing a way as I can, uh, understanding that I can't keep doing what I'm doing right now forever. I will absolutely burn out, hmm. but hopefully I'll get myself to a position uh, where I have an even uh, you know, more lofty perch where I can write more occasionally, but it'll be the same output uh, roughly because I have so many people reading me at that point. Uh, and that way I won't have to fight with, you know, the, the next y younger version of myself who comes along and is, you know, working even longer hours to try to beat me. Hopefully by then I'll be, I'll be beyond that because of the work I'm doing now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I look at it. Yeah. I think that's a, I think it's a very reasonable way to look at it. And, and one of the things, you know, I, I tell myself the same thing and then, you know, part of me is like, I, I don't even fully know. I won't know, I guess, until I get there if I'm, if I'm actually addicted to the, <laughs> I might, I might miss it if I try to, to transition away, but, uh, I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, let me ask you about, okay. So I, I like to play this game. I, I've told you about this before where, you know, I'm on my Facebook or Twitter and I see, uh, reason articles. Um, you know, I love reason. I subscribe on both of those things. So I'll, I'll, I'll you know, see things pop up. And I like to play this game without letting myself look at the author. And sometimes the author it usually isn't listed if it's just like a tweet or whatever. I have to guess if it's a Robbie article based purely on the headline. And I'm like really good at this. I, I'm like 90% accuracy because your headlines are so good. <laughs> your headlines are so clearly designed to make me say, holy crap, that sounds like a huge scandal. Oh my gosh, I have to see what this is. Um, you are fully engaged in this world where getting the clicks is king and you've got to appeal to a very large number of people, um, at least in your target demographic, uh, whatever that niche might be, but it's still a pretty broad appeal. You've got to compete with a lot of noise, a lot of well-funded places, a lot of, uh, you know, cheesy clickbaity, Buzzfeed type stuff, whatever it is you have to appeal to 
people who are on Twitter constantly, you know, how do you, how do you feel about that? And how do you balance trying to be sensational and exciting and, and get those clicks, um, and writing those kind of headlines with writing the kind of content and stories that you want to write? Do you find it a, to be a struggle? It's less of a struggle than you might think because, uh, I mean, I really do think the things I'm writing about are outrageous and people should want to hear about them and that people will be like, oh, wow, when they when they read some of the things I write about. I cover a lot of, uh, and, and, you know, this is relevant to what you do, I cover a lot of what's messed up in the formal university higher education sphere. And uh, and I, I think it is outrageous. All, a lot. I cover a lot of cases of students who are bullied by their universities for, uh, you know, for stepping one toe out of line or for saying something or for having this event, all things totally covered by by the Bill of Rights, by the First Amendment. You know, nothing that they should get in trouble for. I, I've covered students who were who were suspended for handing out copies of the Constitution. I mean, it's just like crazy. And, and everyone, everyone, left, right, everyone is out, outraged to hear that. Hmm. So I don't need to, like, invent crazy content. <laughs> you don't need to write, you know, find out why dentists in New Jersey hate this housewife. <laughs> or, like, you know, the, the, the cure for aging, you'll never believe. Um, yeah. It, you know, it's funny, Robbie. So when I, I, I shudder to to think of this. Uh, I almost hate mentioning it because it just gives me horrible flashbacks. When I used to work in the state legislature in, in Michigan, I had this epiphany and maybe this is unfair, but you know, we were there day in and day out, seeing all the sessions, seeing the lobbyists come and buy the lawmakers lunch, seeing the lawmakers making backroom deals, hearing just the, the stupid, sometimes just ignorant, sometimes scandalous stuff that they would say and do the whole process, the whole sausage making process was just so backward and ugly and inefficient and, and absurd and really scandalous. Like if voters knew this and what I was amazed by there, there was, you know, a, a little gaggle of uh, Capitol Hill um, or, you know, in Lansing, uh, the, the Capitol journalists there. And some of them were better than others. But for the most part, I came to the conclusion that like, uh, journalists, the media, it's not so much that they're like biased towards one party or the other. Um, they may or may not be, but it's more that they're just like lazy biased. <laughs> and I felt like if anybody just followed any given politician around for like a couple days and literally just factually reported or just videotaped what they do, you wouldn't have to sensationalize or spin anything. The average voter, the average reader would find the everyday business of government just scandalous. Like every day there's crazy stuff that normal people would find scandalous if someone just took the time to follow it and report it. And so what you're doing, I'm not surprised that you feel like you don't have to, you don't have to manufacture hype and make something sound crazy. Like there's just crazy stuff going on in these massive bureaucracies. Why do you think there's not more journalism like what you do. Why, why are more reporters not sort of just telling the crazy stuff that goes on all the time? Are they afraid that they'll that they'll lose like sources or, or what? What's the reason for that? I, I don't know precisely, but there are uh, I think there are biases uh, like of a different like of a not a not an across the board. This is the bias, but it depends 
specifically what you're doing. Like if you're a newspaper editorial writer writing like the unsigned op-ed, those clearly have a bias for simple answers, probably because they have no individual voice no from no person. They can't bring in any uh, of a person's experience. So it's always going to be, so it's so often, you know, the, the commission should do this, the government should pass this law because they just, they need simple answers. Whereas like talking heads on, 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 on news shows, you know, they have a very ideological audience one way or the other. So they're giving over the top ideological answers. So it's just, it's just like a clear bias for the way their individual thing is, is set up. And unfortunately, I, I don't think maybe in a lot of those fields, it doesn't reward the very just nitty gritty explore this outrageous thing that people in a in a very nonpartisan way will be outraged about. And and I do think, however, the the rise of more like journalism news websites has clearly tipped the scales toward doing more of that. And you have sites, uh, even sites that don't play nice with me <laughs> on occasion, uh, doing that sort of thing for their various you know, the gawkers and BuzzFeeds and, and even even places, uh, you know, that were once more like magazine places are doing that kind of thing. It, uh, it, it's interesting, the the sort of the possibility in this era of increased transparency, I, I feel like it's taken the, the news industry a long time to slowly catch up. And they've kind of been forced to by a lot of these like plucky upstarts or like citizen journalists or just people with a camera phone. You catch something on on your camera phone and post it to Reddit or whatever. Uh, it's a story just because it's interesting in and of itself, whether or not some some reporter went out and did all the all the work. So I, I think, you know, when I was at the Capitol, there's a handful again of sort of older reporters who it's like, OK, I could spend all kinds of time following this person around and reporting on all this crazy, you know, free handouts they're getting and all this stuff that would, would make voters go crazy. But then they'll be mad at me. And frankly, the whole establishment will be mad at me. And at the end of the day, like, this is a job for me. I go to lunch with these people. Like, this is my social circle. Why would you want to like piss off everybody that you work with every day? And for what a short term hit in like one news story, it's easier to just kind of take the press release, write it up into something and just keep cranking it out. It was just kind of like a it was almost like a nine to five mentality where I thought, man, if some young person who had no concern about being liked by any of these people just wanted to, um, there'd be so much more interest and it would, and it would blow away all the boring stuff that these people are writing, you know, what happened at the committee meeting. Um, and you're, and you're seeing that it's just, it's, it's come from kind of outside of the official journalism world. It seems to me anyway, and it's sort of pressured them to transform, but you're seeing more of that even just the the transparency. Hey, look, now you can watch the whole uh, whatever political hearing or you can see the you know, there's WikiLeaks. There's all this stuff that the content almost tells the story itself without having to have a, a sort of professional wordsmith uh, go around and, and do as much, you know, as much background work. Um, I There was supposed to be a question in there, but I just ended up talking for a long, <laughs> for a long time. Um, go ahead. That, that goes to uh, that it, it's very uh, it, it's impossible for a unsuccessful journalist to hide. You have nowhere you have nowhere to go. And that's no what, one's no one's going to employ you anymore and give you a pension to, to just be on staff. N no. And and you can tell if someone's doing well because you can see their the, the product is available. You see what they're producing. 
you can know, broadly speaking, how many people are, are reading it because you can kind of see other people's traffic, even people you don't work with. Um, or, or you can judge by their the Facebook shares on the article. And you can judge by who else is responding to them. And you can judge it for yourself by reading the article. So it's a very uh, kind of straightforward uh, thing where it's easy to tell uh, everyone's standings. And in some ways, that it's very easy to thrive as a relatively inexperienced person who's just doing a good job anyway, because you are going to get noticed. Mm. Uh, and I've like I've gone so quickly from being a total no one uh, who you know would like I remember the first time an important journalist who is a Andrew Sullivan, uh, who has his own blog and he was formerly of Time in some other places. Like he he cited me in in some argument um, right when I was starting out, and I thought that was so cool. Uh, and, and I've gone from that to now I, you know, every week I have a couple uh, larger journalists uh, talk back to me uh, in, you know, a relatively short amount of time, really. I've only been at this a couple of years. So I think that's uh, kind of spectacular relative to other fields you could choose to go into. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, Robbie, um, you cover a lot of um as I mentioned, and, and you mentioned, you know, education and, and a lot of, you know, sort of corruption, scandal, or just outrageous things happening, whether it's K through 12 or um, universities, you also do some criminal justice type stuff. And some of your big stories that have had kind of ongoing, um, that you've been reporting on an ongoing basis of the developments have been things like this big um, rape accusation scandal at the University of Virginia. Um, it, you know, you often are doing things like, whether it's uh, teachers unions sort of exposing things that shenanigans that they're up to or things like these rape accusations um, or censorship on campus. These are charged, controversial things. And I've seen a lot of the back and forth, um, particularly on the University of Virginia rape thing where like people are calling you names or, or anybody who's involved in the debate where there's it's a highly charged environment where you can easily make like enemies. How how ha has it been hard for you, even going back to the University of Michigan? You know, is it is it hard for you to be writing on controversial things, and how do you deal with like pissing people off based on what you write? Well, you do have to have a moderately thick skin, I think, to do journalism nowadays, and maybe maybe always you did. Uh, that said, no one is thick skinned enough. To, to withstand uh, some of the some of the things that I've been involved in and uh, tons of other journalists are involved in. What I think is so helpful uh, that I do that I, I think has been wise is that I I never lash out back. I, I will respond. I will argue back and forth and sometimes they're heated arguments, but I never or uh, I try very hard not to and I think I rarely do maybe. Uh, I call people names back or say really mean, nasty, cruel things uh, when people are saying the same to me. And that has worked uh, so well because the other person doesn't know, <laughs> doesn't know what to do. And when I'm like, they look like the fool when they're yelling obscenities at me and I'm just like calmly re responding to what <laughs> like, that always backfires on that person. And I've had people, uh, I have had people apologize. I've had people apologize to me formally in like formal articles <laughs> uh, when, uh, when everything cooled down and it, and it saw that, uh, uh, that I was right and, you know, their 
their criticisms were unwarranted, and certainly the hateful things they said were unwarranted. So, uh, so that's my personal, and and it's not because I'm not <laughs> upset. Like I'm not, I'm not totally detached from the world, and it doesn't affect me at all. You know, I'm sitting at my computer at home, and I'm be like. I'll say to my wife, I can't believe what this person's saying, you know? So, so like I am, I'm mad on my end, but I just, I just take a deep breath. I don't let it show. I don't lash out. And uh, I, I, so many journalists make the mistake of doing the opposite. Maybe that works for them. Maybe that gets them more attention. I mean, I certainly make enemies, but I don't think I make like people are going to come kill me because (laughs) (laughs) have you personal. Have you ever written something that you regret writing? Uh, certainly I've written things I regret writing over my career. I don't think I've written anything I regret in the last uh, in the last year uh, since coming to reason. Uh, I do I'll, I'll share the thing I regret writing the most, uh, which I learned from. Uh, this was at the Daily Caller. I was doing uh, reviews. I was doing re- TV reviews, and I, I reviewed an episode of Game of Thrones, and I spoiled. I, <laughs> I, uh, you know, a character had died, and uh, and people were so mad at me. Uh, people who had been did, did you did you not put spoiler alert in the title? No, I I just I you know I think I used. A, the image of the character who had died. And I said, you can't, you, you know, you won't wait to find out who died or something like that. <laughs> People who have been reading my writing since I was in college, who have followed me for years when I was blogging about lost, uh, during, during college, yeah. people stick stuck with me that long messaged me to say they were done. They, they couldn't believe what I had did and they were not going to read me anymore. <laughs> I mean, that hurt me like really bad. I felt so, so bad for this. You know, I changed it. You know, at first, my first impulse was to defend it. I'm like, well, I, you know, it's after it's aired now. I'm a news website. How long? It's, it's your own fault. Come on, you know? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. Like how, like, you know, Darth Vader is Luke's father. Have I now spoiled Star Wars? <laughs> you bastard. I didn't know. <laughs> It's like it's a question how long people should be reasonably expected to be out in the world and protected from from spoilers. But OK, obviously this was the day after I think it hadn't aired. <laughs> so so I felt terrible. Uh, I that definitely taught me a lesson about uh, I, I think I've definitely dialed it back since those days of like putting it all in the headline. This is this is such a great example of so many things we've been talking about that. You know, you've written on, as I mentioned, you know, rape accusations, very sensitive topic, very highly charged. You've written about, you know, um, corruption in in all levels of government. You've written about, you know, sex scandals and et cetera. And the thing (laughs) the thing you've taken the most heat for and that you feel the most bad about is a spoiler on on Game of Thrones. I I absolutely love it, Robbie. I absolutely love it. It, it, You can never predict what what's going to rile people up. And uh, and and I wouldn't even say I'm not one of those people who says, oh, it's a reflection of how people have the wrong priorities. I actually think they have the right priorities. Uh, They have uh, more ability to gain value from watching game of thrones than they do to gain value from you know voting in the next election or being highly engaged in the political news cycle so i don't i don't think that's a negative reflection on your audience at all that they got more upset about that (laughs) than the other stuff i i'm i'm with i am totally with you on that but (laughs) these shows are like beautiful storytelling devices and i mean they improve my my writing from 
from, you know, getting to see, oh, this is how you construct a compelling narrative. Like that is important too in, in what I do. Uh, and in a lot of these, uh, these uh, sort of college things, sometimes they're first person adventure stories of, of the terrible things that, that happened to, uh, to some one student or, or another. So I, I actually think we do have a lot to learn about great storytelling from the the awesome tv shows we have to watch these days well i'm gonna i'm gonna in a minute here uh, before we end ask you a bit more about tv but um briefly what what are your favorite kind of stories and what have you learned from covering uh the education system um in particular uh, what, do you mean favorite kind of story, like favorite kind of, uh, yeah, like what's your favorite thing to write about? What, what do you just love? Like, Oh, this is going to be a great one. I, uh, I love writing about, um, the, well, I, the, the kind of college, uh, speech issue stories, uh, I, I told you about So like, it, like politically correct attempts to squelch like anything that might offend somebody else on college campuses. Yes, but a lot of these are so far divorced from any sort of political context, and they stretch back into into K through twelve, back through to to little kids. I've covered, you know, a, a kid who was suspended for writing a story about a dinosaur. Uh, <laughs> violent content in that story. I, I've written about a, a a girl who was, you know, suspended for 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 a diary entry that the school somehow came you know, confiscated her diary or something. Wow. Like, there is so much uh, that is outrageous to everyone. And, and it's, you know, it's optimistic in a way. Like, people don't have, they don't go, oh, well, this this isn't my people. I'm for this. I'm against it. Like, everyone is against this kind of thing. Yeah. It's uh, it's kind of bringing us together in a way, despite doing it in a, in a you know, despite it being a charged subject. Uh, I think there's a lot of coming together on it. You know, I think that work like what you're doing with education, what um, I know you do a little bit with, um, you know, justice as well, but but people like Radley Balco and others are doing with police abuse and misconduct. I agree with you that this is a, I think it's a powerful uniting force and a force for social change and, and more accountability to these inept power hungry bureaucracies and government systems because it's not like you know it's not like the old woodward and bernstein the old like hey here's one corrupt guy one corrupt politician and a story about one big lie or scandal it's a constant drip of every school district every university every you know police force just like every day there's another abuse scandal misuse and it helps reinforce this sort of public choice theory insight which i'm a big fan of that it's not that we need to elect better people it's not that we just need to get more involved in the you know whatever get, getting better candidates there it's predictable systematic failure anytime you have a monopolized you know government run product or service whether that be law enforcement or education and just reminding people like governments can't do all these wonderful things they promise you that they'll do when you see what they're really like day to day it's like every government department is like the DMV except for some of some of them have uh, guns and tanks <laughs> and, but the same di dysfunction and just that constant reminder it sort of puts constraints this the same way that that uh, one of my favorite economists Pete Becky says that economics uh, puts constraints on our utopias I think your kind of 
transparency, investigative journalism puts constraints on our utopias. It reminds us every day, let's stop and think before we say, hey, there's a problem. Maybe government can solve it because everywhere we look, it's stories of government ineptitude at every level. Maybe we should hold off on asking government to solve the next problem because they might have all these other you know, issues involved. I think that's a really important feature of what you're doing. I think so, too, and I think journalism can play a very important role in explaining why those things are like that, because sometimes people wouldn't believe it if they just heard it. They're like, oh, well, I wouldn't believe that, you know, that cop would just shoot a kid. You know, people didn't people don't do that. Why would he do that? No. Oh, well, there was no camera watching him. He, you know, he. It, has this history of bad behavior. He had, you know, he, he knows that in the justice system, the odds that a cop will get prosecuted are zero. Like, you know, the, the, the incentives are all wrong. There, there's, there's deep fundamental issues. Cause, cause people do behave, uh, behave rashly. So we need to like show why they're doing, you know, what, what made sense to them given all these things. It, just one other example of this, the, the big story that I was working on with the university of Virginia the student who claimed she was this victim of this terrible, horrific crime that none of it has actually happened, we've now determined. And people are like, well, why would she lie? Why would she make this up? You know, how did she expect to get away with it? And I'm like, she must just be crazy. And I'm like, well, I mean, clearly she's disturbed, but she actually behaved quite rationally. Every time her story was going to fall apart, she withdrew. Like she told this story to friends to, to get you know, in, in a position of importance in her social circle. And then when this reporter started writing about it, whenever the reporter asked for details that would have exposed the lie, she withdrew. She stopped answering. She said, no, 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 don't write about me anymore. Then finally, when the reporter was like, okay, never mind, I won't ask any of these clarifying details. Are we good? And she's like, oh, oh, certainly. So she had the wherewithal to know, uh, to, to, to protect her lie. So she behaved totally rationally hmm. from the of someone who wants to like thrive off this lie. And I think it's so important to understand that. And, and, and that's why the reporter did a terrible job because she didn't investigate uh, these kinds of things. And, and so that shows you the power of, of good journalism and, and what it can do responsibly to try to figure out those things. Oh, man. I mean, I think that you know, rational choice theory to use the sort of academic terminology or just economic thinking, applying, applying that, that bar. Okay, let's assume rationality here. And try to understand, given the beliefs, the incentives, the information that the person had at the time, why would they believe acting in this way was beneficial to them or the most rational uh, given the choices that they thought they had? And I think doing that instead of allowing ourselves to immediately turn it into a morality tale of good and evil, oh, this is an evil person, therefore they just did an evil thing with no explanation, has no rationality to it, Uh, it it wasn't even good for them, it didn't even get them to their end, you know, like the stupid villains in the movies that like don't even achieve their own stated goal because they're so irrationally evil that they like whatever, you know, kill their own customers who are going to make them rich. I think removing that and not letting ourselves go there um, makes us so much better at discovering the truth and, and, you know, actually gaining enlightenment, whether it's in, you know, current events or, um, just analysis of, of society in, through the social sciences or whatnot. Um, okay. I just have a couple more questions for you. I don't want to keep you too long, but one is just sort of on a personal note. And I don't know if this is just your personality or if you cultivate this intentionally, you are always a happy guy when I see you and not just like, la 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 happy like you genuinely seem to enjoy life you write about a bunch of horrible stuff that's happening pretty much all the time you get people pissed off frequently um 
but you are not jaded or cynical. You just seem you, you haven't had to like be like a sarcastic, jaded, like critic to cope with all the crap that you had to put up with and write about. It doesn't seem to bother you. You just sort of make jokes, have a good time. You seem to really enjoy your life and be very happy um, despite kind of being in the muck all the time. Is that just who you are naturally or have you had to cultivate that ability to not let it sort of wear you down? Well, I, I am definitely a naturally like happy person. I've had I've had a good life. I've had uh, certainly, you know, no more struggles than the next person, uh, probably fewer. But uh, but I, I think being I, I like to think that I'm, I'm well informed about the things I'm covering and being well informed, broadly speaking, I think supports an optimistic outlook. Uh, I mean, sometimes what I'm writing about is is frequently how the 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 kind of we're doomed thinking is totally over the top and wrong. I mean, you know, I, I've been writing about campus sexual assaults and uh, and and how we can address those. But if you look at like over time, I, I rates of sexual assault have plummeted. Uh, rates of murder have plummeted. Like every by every metric, we are we are less violent than we were 20 years ago by like by a gigantic factor. So, 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 you know, we, we're, we're richer than we were. We have, uh, there's less poverty. There's, uh, I, you know, we're not, we're not running out of resources. We, we kind of like, we have good lives. Uh, so everything is kind of getting better. So I, I think a lot of what I do is almost talking people off the cliff or talking, you know, talking other journalists off the cliff, like, <laughs> Oh, this is all about to fall apart, which is not to say we don't have problems. You know, things can be going in a positive direction and individual facets of that are going backward. I, I think you would have a hard time arguing that like our education system, broadly speaking, is is moving in a positive direction or has been moving in a positive direction for the last 20 years. <laughs> uh, and I and, and, and certainly sexual assault on campus is an issue. Uh, but you're you, you know, young women are, are more likely to be sexually assaulted off a campus uh, at campuses are, are like relatively safe places for privileged people. Uh, so, so there's a certain amount of, I, I think, skepticism that I bring to this everything is falling apart mentality, even though I write about some, some, some pretty awful things uh, and they're things we should, we should address. Uh, we, we don't need to, and maybe that gives me more credibility to address the kind of mm. uh, individual instances of failure. You know, there is certainly racism in our criminal justice system. There is certainly the cost of college is out of whack, and I write about these things, and I try to explain why they're the case, but they are not you know, symptoms in a pattern of the whole world going to hell. That That's one thing that I absolutely love and appreciate about your writing, your perspective, and, and frankly, reason uh, more broadly, and they've been doing this for, for decades, is that ability to dive into an individual story and talk about it and all the, the, the horrible things, the scandal, the corruption – but to constantly maintain that broader perspective and to actually look at what's happening in the world and be able to tell two stories. Here are the specific things that are bad and here's how bad they are. But it's within this broader context of progress and a lot of good things. OK, the school system's really screwed up, um, but technology and just a more dispersed information, more and more people are leaving the school system, creating other options. In general, human knowledge is not declining, even though standard test scores might be, whatever. That that ability to maintain those perspectives 
And to be serious about both of them, to take problems seriously, but also put it in context. It's so important. I, I was talking with a friend recently about you could ask a time traveler if you if you lived, you know, went back 100 years and somebody in 1900 said, what's the future like? You could tell two different stories, totally different stories, both true. You could say, oh, we're going to have two horrendous world wars. Hundreds of millions of people are going to die. We're going to drop a nuclear bomb. There's going to be a great depression. There's going to be hyperinflation. There's going to be gulags. There's going to be fascism, communism. There's, You could tell all these stories, totally true. You could also say, everyone's going to be driving around in cars that are temperature controlled. We're going to have these smartphones in our hand. We're going to be flying into outer space, right? These are both true stories and they both need to be told. And I think that's a really important um, feature of your sort of pointing out the flaws nested within a broader um, big picture optimism. Okay, so Robbie, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you before we go because you do love television and good stories. Uh, you got me into the show Lost, and I followed your blog religiously, trying to under, trying to have you explain to me what had happened in every episode after I watched it. You told me about the show Fringe, which I also really enjoyed. What shows are you into right now, and what should I be watching? What should, you, what, what should Isaac Morehouse be watching? Yes, I need your insight. You're like my TV shrink. Well, I, I think we've argued a little bit about uh, uh, The Walking Dead, which I, I enjoy and, and, and watch, but I has a lot of flaws, but I, I would recommend to people anyway. Um, I do. I do like it. I do like it a lot. There are things that bug me about it, but I do still like it. Yeah. Um, the Americans is a great show that, that people should be watching that's getting its due. Okay, about. I've heard a lot of people tell me that. I'll have to go check that one out. That's like a Cold War era, like spy thriller type of thing. Yeah, spy thriller, but it's these it's these deep uh, deep undercover uh, Russian spies living in the '80s in 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 America with two kids. So it's sort of their marriage is like a metaphor for the Cold War, ah. and, and it's very harshly condemning of capitalism. It's actually been called like the most <laughs> neoconservative show ever on television because it, it presents like great justification for like attacking the the Soviet Union. Uh, but it's it, it's really enjoyable, uh, even if you agree with it or not. So that show and Better Call Saul, the sequel to Breaking Bad. I oh think. yeah, is that so? That's worth checking out. Very, very, very worth. Such a brilliant out. character on that show, Breaking Bad. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's what I, Game of Thrones. Always, I'm watching everything on HBO right now. Game I'm of just Thrones. about to get into Game of Thrones. I haven't started it yet, so I'm way behind. Thanks. Right, well, I won't read your spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't read any article. We, I did change that headline. Oh. oh Make that mistake again but uh, yeah let me know when you uh, when you see that we'll have to uh, we'll have to chat about it. i absolutely will do you have any words of advice or wisdom for any aspiring writers out there my uh my words of advice are just just do it just write just uh if you're in college work for your for your newspaper if you're not you can still you can still find internship i mean it's easy to get an internship it, you won't make a lot of money you might make no money at first but that's the great thing about it. That's why they can take you on because you don't have demands and uh, and, you know, just actually do things, just actually write, just sitting around like at a newspaper or at a magazine or at the headquarters for a website. You're not going to succeed just by sitting around. You have to actually uh, write something. Uh, my guest has been Robbie Sobe. You can find him at Reason.com um, and you can also find him on Twitter and Facebook. Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.